Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Eagle Moss and the official Star Trek Starships XL Editions, a special series of large format ships officially authorized by CBS Studios. Subscribe today and receive the USS Enterprise D for 20% off the regular price and with free shipping. For details and to order, visit st-starshipsxl.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 262, Emergence. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week, we watch an episode of Star Trek, taking it apart for messages, morals, and meanings, and seeing whether the whole thing holds up today. This week, Emergence, the one where the Enterprise is taken over by the Enterprise. Ooh, I've got trivia coming up in a moment, but first... A word from Eagle Moss and the official Star Trek Starships XL editions. You asked for bigger ships, and Eagle Moss delivered. Or they, they will deliver, once you ask them to. Fans ask for bigger ships, and that's what they get with XL editions. Officially authorized by CBS Studios, these ships sail from every corner of Star Trek. That's all the Star Trek TV series, all the movies, from Star Trek The Motion Picture through Star Trek Beyond. Now, what's cool about these ships is, I mean, they're as close to screen accurate as Eagle Moss can get. And they're big. These are actually some of the biggest uh, starships that Eagle Moss has ever put out. Each one expertly crafted. Each one rich in detail. Each one, oh, you know they come with the stand, but they come with so much more than that. I mean, they're die-cast, they're hand-painted. They come with the in-depth magazines that you've heard us talk about a lot. I love those things because they always, I learn, I mean, I'm kind of interested in how they make the ships, but it's, it's learning about the, you know, the, the in-universe stuff that isn't necessarily on the screen or maybe it's just like a brief mention. I mean, I'm a huge fan. Well, I'm a fan of the stand. I'm a fan of the ships. I'm a fan of the magazines. I, I guess I'm a fan of the whole thing, John. Don't forget to mention the stand. Uh, oh, it does come with the stand, doesn't it? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Those aren't bad. <laughs> beautiful stand all right so we have two ways not one but two ways you can get these amazing xl edition ships here's what we'll do ken i'll explain one way to get it mm. and then you'll chime in with another way to get it okay you can subscribe risk-free start out with the eight and a half inch xl edition uss enterprise ncc 1701d for 20 percent off the retail price plus free shipping You'll also receive three exclusive free gifts worth $100 as part of your subscription, and you may cancel at any time. Additional ships will arrive every other month for the same 20% off and with the same free shipping. So what you're telling me is that's one option. 
Yeah, that that's one. Okay. But we're not going to stop there. No. You're going to tell our listeners the other option. That's only 50% of the options available to you. Exactly. Here comes the other 50. Just buy the ones you want. Pick and choose would be the way to do this. You look through all the different XL edition ships that are available. Uh, you buy them online. You pay the regular price then. But, you know, hey, you're picking and choosing. So you're fine with that, I'm assuming. In addition to the Enterprise-D, other XL editions now available include the original USS Enterprise NCC-1701, the Enterprise-E from the Next Generation movies. You know, I've been thinking uh, I might watch those pretty soon, John. Hmm, I might really? Watch, I think I'll join you. I might watch the next. You want to you watch the Next Gen movies with me pretty soon? Yeah, let's do that. All right, cool. That would be fun. Yeah, mm -hmm. and then so if people pick and choose the Enterprise-E, they can just, you know, hold up theirs to the screen and, and see how screen accurate it is. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, they've just added the um, 22nd Century's Enterprise, uh, the one with uh, with Archer and um, Porthos. The dog. Thank you for mentioning the dog. <laughs> Pretty yes. sure there yes. are other characters, and I look forward to meeting them someday. Mm. So the choice is yours. All you have to do is visit st-starshipsxl.com and make it so. That's st-starshipsxl.com. And a big thanks to Eagle Moss for sponsoring this week's show. John's got trivia coming up in just a moment, but first, I'm going to tell you how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including Discover Documents and other places to leave comments, is missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And with that, we turn things over to the Trivia Master. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you once again, John Champion. Today's episode, Emergence, has a story credited to Brannon Braga, it was Brannon's idea, but he and Ronald D. Moore were busy working on what would be the season finale, and the series finale at that, so Jerry Taylor recruited Joe Minoski to write the screenplay. So, look, let's face it, if we're going to go into a weird but thoughtful direction, this is probably the right team to assign Joe Minoski writing a Brannon Braga story. And the whole idea, the whole background was to do the ultimate holodeck show and just make it weird. So they did. <laughs> and um, that original idea was pretty over the top. So actually, Naren Shankar was given the script to give it a final polish to rein it in and make something more shootable out of it. Okay. And just have set after set after set, character after character after character. Wait, was that the idea? Yeah, yeah, it, it was a, a bit over the top, uh, a, a bit too much to actually produce. Mm. So Naren Shankar said, okay, let, let's just sort of rein this in to maybe one set <laughs> and, and a handful of characters <laughs> so we'd actually shoot this on budget. Yeah. So that, that was his contribution. Um, 
directed by Cliff Bull. Now, this is the final episode of Next Gen for him. He started way back in season one with Lonely Among Us, and most recently we talked about his episode, Eye of the Beholder. He racked up 25 credits as a Next Gen director, more than anyone else. Let's talk about some set pieces here. Uh, hey, no need to build a train. The production was actually able to use the set created for the 1992 film Bram Stoker's Dracula. Hmm. Redressed, of course, because it was a different period, but they made it look like the Orient Express here. And they got to use stock footage from the 1974 film Murder on the Orient Express. Uh, used at least for an exterior where you have the uh, the wheels on the track creating those sparks. That is from that film. Um Speaking of effects and film footage, we have a use of CG here, relatively rare on Next Gen, but Amblin Entertainment created that CG model of the life form that we see toward the end of the episode. Hey, there's a mention of Gertrude Stein and Sigmund Freud on the Orient Express. I really wish I could verify this. Mm. I looked everywhere that I could think to look for this, and I couldn't verify it. I hope that that's true. <laughs> so if anybody has any additional information, I would love to hear it. Now, we do have a mention here in the beginning and at the end, quite explicitly, of Shakespeare's The Tempest. Now, written around 1611 and considered by some experts to be the last play that Shakespeare completed on his own. A few similarities and differences with today's story. Uh, for the crew, there is an element of magic at work here in the natural world. Uh, but alas, big difference, there is no romance subplot in this version. Now, let's talk about guest stars. The hitman is played by Vinny Argyro. Now, this is Vinny's only Trek appearance, but he has appeared in so many productions since the early 80s. Many of them on my list of favorites. He has two Tim Burton films, uh, Mars Attacks and Ed Wood, in which he played the director of Vampira's TV show. His first credit goes back to 1983 when he played a salesman in Risky Business. The Hayseed is played by Arlie Reed. Uh, not many credits to his name, but some cool ones like The Rocketeer and an episode of M.A.S.H., and he was in one earlier episode of Next Gen playing a waiter in Starship Mine. David Huddleston plays the conductor. His career goes back to the early 60s with small roles on TV. He showed up more prominently in movies. He appeared in Blazing Saddles and another Mel Brooks film, the remake of The Producers. He's in the sci-fi conspiracy film Capricorn One, and he is the titular character in The Big Lebowski. Oh, yeah, he is. <laughs> he is he's the big lebowski he he is the not not a yeah he's the big lebowski well, he's the big lebowski right yeah not not the little one because because jeffrey lebowski yeah. is the dude mm -hmm. right he he's is. not the big yeah. lebowski he's just the dude he's the dude his dudeness exactly. el duderino if you're not into the whole brevity <laughs> thing <laughs> right this guy's the big lebowski David Huddleston is the big Lebowski. And uh, sadly, we lost Huddleston in 2016 at the age of 85. This is his only Trek appearance. The late engineer is played by Thomas Kopachi. Now, remember this name if you haven't already. We saw him once before in the next phase in season five. And Thomas has the distinction of being in a small club of actors who appeared in four of the Trek spinoff series, 
And who knows, maybe there's time to add him to a fifth. And uh, he plays seven different characters. Now, we'll catch up with him again in the movie Generations and then in subsequent Trek TV appearances. He had a recurring role on the West Wing as Assistant Secretary of State. And you may have recently seen him as the cowboy on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver and all those fake commercials they feature. Finally, the only character in every episode of The Next Generation gets a storyline. Prologue. In a dark holodeck scene, Data is rehearsing Prospero in Shakespeare's The Tempest, with Captain Picard there as critic and acting coach. Initiating the thematic foreshadowing program, Picard explains that Prospero is witnessing the end of the old magic and celebrating the arrival of the challenge of the future. Off in the distance, a steam whistle is heard, and before you can say Mr. Toad's wild ride, a locomotive comes barreling down on the scene, nearly crushing Picard and Data. Act 1. The two escape with a few scratches. Data's not sure what happened, but it seems like the holodeck had erroneously blended two different programs, The Tempest and Dr. Crusher's Orient Express. Data investigates the technical error and shuts down the other holodecks. Later on the bridge, the crew carry on with their current mission, surveying areas for more Federation colonies, it's all very uneventful until there is an event. Without warning, the Enterprise leaps forward at warp 7.3 on nobody's order. The helm isn't responding. Even Geordi down in engineering has no idea what happened. But he offers to do an emergency shutdown of the warp engines. And what do you know, the ship drops back down to impulse power. Except Geordi didn't do anything. He didn't have time. Want to hear something even weirder? In addition to the ship spontaneously jumping to warp, sensors indicate that right before that happened, there was a theta flux distortion building up around the ship. And you know what that means, right? I mean, come on, theta flux distortion? Okay, for the two of you who don't know, that's bad. So bad it could have damaged the warp core and blown everything up. Bonus weirdness? The Enterprise sensors weren't set up to detect theta distortions. Act 2. In the time-honored way of fixing things, Geordi and Data crawl through a Jeffries tube, and on the way they have a chat about how weird things are. Seems like the Enterprise warped away because of those sensor readings, but those systems aren't connected to each other. Fair enough. But opening a panel reveals a whole lot of bendy straws. Well, it looks that way. What it really is, is a mystery. New circuit nodes connecting systems that haven't been connected until now. Apparently, they're all over the ship, too, and they're protecting themselves with a force field. Riker tells Geordi and Data that they need to make getting control of the ship their first priority, since presumably, the more of these nodes show up, the more control they will take. Strangely, it appears that the nodes are using Holodeck 3 as a kind of focal point, and therefore a pretty good place to start the investigation. The holodeck is actually running, and what they find is an odd combination. It's the Orient Express, but occupied by flappers, an Old West gunslinger, a knight, some hillbilly excited about going to Vertiform City. None of it makes sense. And Data estimates there are pieces of seven programs running simultaneously. 
In any case, he has isolated an area that should have the circuitry he's looking for and will depolarize the tech he's teching. The conductor of the train stops him, though, demanding that he and Riker hand over their tickets. They don't have tickets, of course, but the engineer runs out to tell the conductor to stop harassing them since they are here to help. He doesn't get any further than that, though. A shot rings out, and a 1930s hitman appears to have killed the engineer. Just about that time, a control panel and main engineering explodes, knocking Jordy to the floor. Back in the holodeck, the conductor sends a signal and they are on their way again, which excites the other virtual passengers. Sure enough, in real life, in engineering, the Enterprise goes to warp again and no one is in control of the navigation and helm computers. The hitman who shot the engineer reaches over to retrieve a brick from his victim. This pleases the conductor, who reminds the hitman to take good care of it. Furthermore, he tells the three Enterprise crew members that they should leave, and Data points out to Riker that holodeck safety protocols appear to be off. They retreat. Now in the relative safety of not the holodeck, Data reveals that most of the ship's systems are working independently, but the holodeck is still the focal point. It's as if the computer is working through the holodeck. One other weird thing, the structure of all those nodes that are popping up on the Enterprise closely resemble Data's positronic brain, which would lead one to believe that the Enterprise is forming its own intelligence. Act 3. Call it a neural matrix, if you will. Uh, Data will, even if you don't. It might be rudimentary, but it's a system exhibiting signs of intelligence. Awareness. So what do we do? All the connections intersect in the holodeck, so maybe they need to go back in and see what can be learned. This time Deanna goes in with Data and Worf. She's trying to get a sense of who the characters are, some of whom are working on a puzzle that resembles something like those nodes. The characters tell Worf they don't know what it is, but they need to finish it. Deanna tries to join a card game with the hitman and the Old West gunslinger, that's not happening, and the hitman takes particular umbrage when she reaches for that brick. He says it's very valuable, and he's got to get it to Keystone City, and his stop is right here. Cut to a New York City backlot, and the three crew members exit onto the street, trying to follow the hitman while Data attempts to access the Enterprise power grid through a manhole cover. Deanna and Worf chase after the hitman, when they catch up with him, he's putting that lone brick into a wall, and with the wall complete, he says he's laying the foundation. Around that time, Geordi reports to Captain Picard that all kinds of weird behaviors are happening all over the ship. Cargo Bay 5 depressurized. The transporters are going off. He has no idea what's happening. Picard sends him off to get some idea, and arriving in Cargo Bay 5, what does Geordi find but a small, glowing object on its own, resembling those computer nodes that have shown up all over the ship, and looking exactly like the image on the puzzle that was being assembled in the holodeck. Act 4. All this time, Data has been working on that power coupling, attempting to depolarize the grid and hopefully slow down whatever is happening to the ship. Twice now, a holodeck taxi has tried to knock him over, but he was able to stop it with his bare hands, android power, and get back to work. Whatever he's doing is working, but it's having a terrible effect everywhere else. 
the Enterprise's structural integrity is failing, and as a parallel, there's an earthquake in the holodeck, one which causes a brick wall to crumble on Deanna. Data will have to stop whatever he's doing. Reconvening in sickbay, the crew try to put the pieces of their own puzzle, the metaphorical one, together. Deanna relays that whatever is going on, the computer glitch is clearly trying to keep everyone else out of its way, and it's all related to something being constructed. Jordy says it's probably all about that object in the cargo bay, but why? It's something created by transporter-slash-replicator technology. They can identify some, but not all of the compounds in it. Deanna proposes a little more that the characters in the holodeck are all metaphors for the processes of the ship's computer, the engineer for navigation, the gunslinger for weapons, but they're all acting on impulse. It may be impossible to reason with them to get back control of the ship. Why not then choose a different tactic? You know, work with them. We'll call it cooperation. Or surely. So back into the holodeck we go. Deanna, Data, and Worf present tickets to the train conductor to go to Vertiform City, and now everyone seems much more welcoming. Deanna asks the hillbilly about Vertiform City, but all he knows is that the food is good, which, by all estimation, is a good enough reason to be in a hurry to get somewhere. Worf helps out with shoveling coal in the locomotive, and sure enough, on the bridge, they find that warp engines are working perfectly well and the Enterprise is en route to a white dwarf star. Arriving there, a tractor beam emanates from the ship, collecting the Verdeon particles. Hey, wait a minute. Verdeon? Vertiform City? Maybe we're on to something. Those Verdeon particles are routed through the transporters right to the object sitting in the cargo bay, and it sure seems like things are going well, for a moment. The object is showing signs that it's generating its own power, but the flow of Verdeon particles suddenly stops, it's all out, and the power from the object diminishes. In the holodeck locomotive, the conductor looks worried. This isn't Furtiform City after all. They'll have to change course, and he throws the brake, shaking everyone on board to the floor. Act 5. Everyone on the train is okay, and of course that incident was parallel to the Enterprise losing all control. In the cargo bay, Geordi reveals what he thinks is going on. When the object was being hit with Verdeons... It was forming an energy matrix of its own, a pattern that was almost organic in nature. Yeah, the Enterprise is essentially creating a bouncing baby... something. Picard's concern now is whether or not the thing can and will survive. Probably. If they can get some more Verdeon particles. Sure enough, the ship takes off at high warp on its way to another white dwarf star. But that creates a new problem. The energy consumption is so high, and the trip is so long, it'll burn out everything else, including life support. This makes it imperative that the crew wrestle away control of the ship again, and just maybe find another source of Verdeon to feed Junior. Jordy has an idea. Get close enough to a nebula where they can detonate a modified photon torpedo and create Verdeon particles. Will it work? Who knows? But it's worth a shot. The only way to get control of the ship, though, is through the holodeck, and the characters on the train are still suspicious. Deanna convinces him to let at least one of them try to help. 
Data steps into the cab and convinces the conductor that he knows a shortcut to new Vertiform City. They're behind schedule as it is, and the conductor talks the hitman into letting the android give it a try. Data lays on the brake a bit, which brings the Enterprise down to impulse power. Jordy launches his torpedo, and sure enough, they're making Verdeon particles all over the place. The conductor sees that they have arrived at new Vertiform City, and there is celebration as those particles are beamed to the new life form in the cargo bay. What next? Well, the nodes on the Enterprise begin to disappear as the life form exits the ship, headed for who knows where. Back in the holodeck, a round of champagne to celebrate. Thank goodness it stays when the location disappears. All seems back to normal on the Enterprise. Data tells Picard that he'll be performing a scene from The Tempest tonight, the one where Miranda meets other humans for the first time. Seemed appropriate. And while they're at it, Data asks Picard about his risky decision to allow the Enterprise to complete its task of, you know, creating a heretofore unknown life form. Picard says that the Enterprise is the sum of all the experience of its crew, and if their experiences have been honorable, then so will be its offspring. The end. I quote, they might be giants. Often. Often. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sure as you can't steer a train, you can't change your fate. Unless you're Data. I know a shortcut. Really? Mm -hmm. You know a shortcut? Yeah. Because we're on a train. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) With tracks that go Mm -hmm. like that way or back that way. But you know know a shortcut. Yeah. There's a virtual switch man somewhere out there. Yeah. (laughs) That's that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, Hey, theta distortions are dangerous. Mm. But sensors don't detect theta distortions, which which honestly seems like something that should have been incorporated a long, long time ago. Like even if you can't directly detect the theta distortion, you detect the thing around the theta distortion. I don't know. I'm just I'm, I'm spitballing here. Uh, just a, a thing that I'm going to say should be incorporated. Well, it's kind of crazy. The ship is looking for them, even mm-hmm. though its sensors aren't calibrated for it. Mm-hmm. Is the ship always looking for them? But then normally, if it's not making a kid, then it's just like, yeah, whatever. What do do I care? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, Data has to tell Riker that the holodeck safety is off, which, again, you know, I think we've hit this point before. Just from now on, it's a good assumption that any time you go into a holodeck, the safety is off. Just (laughs) It's like it's how you treat a gun. You just assume it's always loaded. That that's the way you should treat the holodeck. No, because then the holodeck's no fun. I mean, the, the whole point is like you know you can have sword fights and you can have duels with pistols and you can you know, climb um, you know huge rock faces knowing that you're safe. Can we we have done seven seasons of Next Gen? I'm going to say that rarely has the holodeck ever been fun. It has been a source of danger. It has been a source of peril for our crew. Only when we see it. I mean, like we've talked about this before as well. We're only seeing like the the days that theoretically something interesting happens on the Enterprise, right? Yeah, think about plenty of other days where it's just like nothing. Yeah, think about those lower crewmen who we've lost in the holodeck who we haven't even heard about. (laughs) It's a good point. (laughs) Speaking of which, when Data shuts down the holodecks, does he check 
to see whether they're being used. Because, like, they have the problem. You know, the captain and the android have the problem. And Picard's like, mm-hmm. oh, you better shut down the holodecks. And Data's like, I'm on it. Now, he apparently goes over and immediately starts shutting down the holodecks, right. which it seems to me could be, you know, weird to anybody who's in the middle of something. Like, does he <laughs> warn people, like, if they're in the middle of something? And also, does he see what they're doing before he warns them? <laughs> oh, I hope not. I hope not. Well, I don't know, because it depends on what they're doing. I mean, go back to Picard's kid, just for a second, who it turns mm-hmm. out was not Picard's kid. But go back to Picard's kid. Right. So he's halfway up a rock wall. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. Data turns off the holodeck. Oh, no Does good. he not fall? No, uh, yeah. Even, you know, that room is at least a couple of decks high, at right. least, you right. know. And even though you're not like thousands of feet up, you could still be 20, 30 feet up. Yeah, you yeah. can break your leg. You mm-hmm. can break your back. I mean, there are any number mm-hmm. of things that could go wrong if you just turn off the holodeck without anybody knowing. Right, right. Um, and we could make a long list of those things. Um, <laughs> hey, <laughs> one of our listeners pointed out um, at, at the end of Act 3, Jordy calls Picard from the cargo bay and and has literally nothing to report in the dialogue. Picard here, what's going on? I wish I could tell you. The next line of dialogue should be, then why did you call? Yep. <laughs> I had I had the same thing. LaForge yeah. to Bridge. What's going on? I wish I could tell you. Thanks for calling? What? <laughs> right. I, I assumed you were going to get there. Does Jordy do that like every time? Like, Jordy, you need to be back in engineering. And like 30 seconds later, it's like, hey, it's Jordy. I'm back in engineering. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Anything to report? Every yeah. time you go someplace, you well, yeah, I'm back. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Uh, what Jordy is really good at reporting is how much warp power has dropped. And I'm here to tell you it dropped 47%. Ding, 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 ding. Of course yes. it did. Yes. Uh-huh. It did. We're not harshing on Jordy. In fact, I'm going to not harsh on Jordy right now. I'm going to harsh on his friend, uh, Data. Jordy. Does the configuration of the connector nodes look familiar to you? Um, it seems to me that this is like Jordy as John Watson. It's yeah. Data as Sherlock Holmes. It's also Data as condescending jerk. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because I think what you do is you say, this replicates my my nodes. But no, no, this is a, this is a teaching moment or a teachable moment for Jordy. So it really felt condescending to me. It felt like a, just a terrible, terrible thing for him to do. Like, Jordy, does this look familiar? And like, what if Jordy had been like, looks kind of like a dandelion? Right. You know? And then Data's going to be like, ah, sorry, the answer I was looking for was something smart. Something yeah. smart. Uh, another thing that one of our listeners wrote in, uh, actually a, a couple of people, I want to say, asked us to notice the choice that Michael Dorn made or, or the director directed Michael Dorn to make about not knowing how to use a shovel in, in the, in, in the cab there. He's in front of the boiler and the conductor hands in the shovel. I actually didn't see it that way. I, I just saw a kind of, you know, Dorn plays all these funny kind of subtext bits a lot. Uh, like like he's just sort of barely tolerating what's going on. Right. And, and I saw that as a moment of Worf barely tolerating what's going on. That was actually exactly what I saw as well, especially when um, the conductor says, well, we could sure use some help up front. And Antiana's like, Worf, go with him. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that, that that was what I got out of it. I actually had a question around that as well, not about whether or not Worf knew how to shovel, but... Um, how does warp shoveling fake coal into a fake boiler help the actual Enterprise go? 
Uh, yeah, because if the Enterprise wanted to go, it could just go. You'd think so. Yeah, unless – I mean, and this gets a little bit into the philosophical stuff, which I'm assuming we'll do in the next segment. But, I mean, unless unless the Enterprise needed to know that nothing was going to try to stop it. I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. it, there almost mm-hmm. seemed to be like a Tinkerbell principle at work here. Mm-hmm. Just like, you know, well, if you believe you can go, you can go. What is it? What is the phrase? Oh, as you believe, so shall you so do. So shall you do. Yes. As We're you believe, so shall you do. So shall you so do. So shall you do. So shall you do. I so can't remember how many do. times we've said it now. Like nine. Many. <laughs> many more times than the Gorgon did, but whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there was a weird thing, and I think you actually mentioned it at the end of the recap. Mm-hmm. The only source of reference it has is ours. I guess this was actually Deanna had said that earlier, talking about the, uh, you know, talking about the, uh, the the enterprise. The only source of reference it has is ours through our holodeck programs. Yeah. So really, shouldn't every character on the train have been having sex <laughs> the whole time? Yeah, Sorry, because well, I yeah. gotta think that's really what the holodeck. It's not all the holodeck is for, but that's largely what the holodeck is for. Yeah, the the holodeck represents say the the breadth of human and alien entertainment and escapism yes and really it could take on many many forms yeah, doing it doing it yes, is going to be yes. one of the primary forms i we think. have to assume yeah we have to assume it just struck me as odd it's like oh yeah and then in the end when picard's like oh well if everything we've done is like on the up and up then it should be fine i'm like mm. yeah, well <laughs> that is yeah. Yeah, that is that's like uh, mm-hmm. family show, family show. Remember the leisure suit Larry flying around the uh, flying around yeah. the galaxy from now on. No, remember it's a family show. This is where they listen to smooth jazz and uh, music played on a lute. I know. Yes, mm-hmm. that's okay. Uh, again, we'll, we'll get into stuff about the the nature of this being, this new life form, um, and. I was left with this one question. What if this thing goes around the galaxy sucking down Verdeon particles from any star it can find? Mm-hmm. How long before someone has to kill it? Why does anybody have to kill it? Do we need Verdeon particles? Well, I, I just picture this thing going around to white star, white dwarf stars, maybe other stars that, that produce Verdeon particles. And, and if you take away enough from a star... Do you make that star no longer function as the star it was? And let's say that that star was providing radiation and and warmth and light for, say, an uh, an inhabited planet. I think it's possible for that star to still be the star it is. Okay. (laughs) All right. Sounds a little, you know, weird and and self-helpy. But yeah. I don't know. I mean, the stars still seem to be shining just as bright when they were done. I was kind of figuring it was just a byproduct that nothing else was using. But yeah, I guess maybe. I don't know. Here's another complicated thing to leave you with. If the Enterprise did this once, can it or will it do it again? Hmm. And uh, and what about other ships running the same OS? Hmm. Should, should the Enterprise send out a memo? Like saying, uh, hey, guys. Power down your computers. Just hear this out. I did not appreciate how cavalier the crew was about, maybe, not killing the computer. Would they be so cool about, maybe, not killing Picard? Or, maybe, not killing Data? Or, maybe, not killing Barkley even? Okay. They would be that cavalier about Barkley. 
Stop me if you've heard this one. Mm-hmm. Sigmund Freud and Gertrude Stein riding on a train. I love this. According to Crusher, uh, they were both on the train at the same time, both on the Orin Express at the same time. Probably not the same time when the murder was. <laughs> Although you <laughs> no. never know. True. True. So they're both on the train at the same time, and they ended up having dinner together every night, said Crusher. And Picard says, mm-hmm. I wonder what they talked about. And Crusher says, why don't you take a trip and find out? This actually got me wondering way much about things that maybe I shouldn't be wondering about. I think about it every now and then, though, like when you have something like um, uh, like the movie Valkyrie or the movie Amistad or okay. the movie Schindler's List okay. or the movie, I don't know, The Babe. <laughs> right, you, you, you're naming off uh, a lot of interesting movies with uh, Malcolm X. Yeah. Okay, is another one. Yeah. Malcolm X actually was a particularly was one in particular that I, like I got lost in the fact that I was watching a film of the guy's life. I wasn't watching a documentary. I was writing something that somebody watching something that uh, somebody had written or scripted. Mm-hmm. Right, that was mm-hmm. acted. Yeah. Spike Lee, I think, is a fantastic filmmaker. Don't always like every movie that he makes, but I think he's a fantastic filmmaker. And I was watching sure. through the lens that Spike Lee was, you know, watching through as well. Going on the holodeck to hang out with a representation of Gertrude Stein and a representation of Sigmund Freud does not tell you what they actually talked about. Mm, yeah. Uh, well, I, I think you're you're asking about point of view, correct? <laughs> Well, no, I think I'm. I think I'm actually warning against assuming that something that seems real is real. I mean, that's. I mean, that's. Mm-hmm. She didn't say, "Oh, well, you could pretend to find out." She was like, "Oh, you want to know what they talked about? Go to the holodeck and 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 play the game." Yeah, because that's going to tell you what these actual people actually talked about. And no, it's not. And it just well, it struck me as it struck me as an interesting thing for her to uh, for her to uh, sort of assert, and it, it kind of made me. Like you worry about whether or not people know how to party or you worry about many things about the 24th century. I worry about what their ideas of truth are at that point. It goes back to you and I have talked before about, you know, are there still mountain climbers in the 24th century or are they all fine just going to the holodeck and pretending to climb a mountain? Mm -hmm. This is even scarier to me, though, because it's just like, oh, well, here's what the computer said that they said. So probably it's what they said. And and you know now as much as you need to know about what they actually did. It's a bit like watching television and thinking that you know things. Yeah, I, well, I thought about this too, and and that's kind of one of the reasons that I planted that seed early on to to ask if Gertrude Stein and Sigmund Freud actually did meet each other and and chat, and is this documented? Because I would love to know. And I kept thinking about how that would play out on a holodeck, and the reason I asked about point of view is. If you are in the holodeck, clearly you can interact with those characters. Mm-hmm. If I were to walk into a holodeck and encounter Gertrude Stein and Sigmund Freud, um, I would be entirely intimidated and not want to participate in that conversation, but I'd love to watch it. I, I would love to actually see that play out because those are both fascinating characters, fascinating historical figures. Now, getting back to this question about truth, um, I think that's a really good point. Now, let's suppose that, you know, the enterprise computer in the best possible way is this collection of all of human knowledge and all of human history. Mm-hmm. So you you have everything that has ever been recorded and written about or by Gertrude Stein. She, of course, was a writer. So, you know, you have a lot of her own words to deal with. 
And, and the computer at some point could come up with, with a pretty accurate representation of what she would look like and sound like and, and the words that she would use and maybe reform them in some way that you could have a virtual conversation with her or same thing with Freud. You know, you, you kind of jump around from topic to topic or whatever, but that computer approximation would be accurate to an extent. And you as a participant might get that the same way that you go to a movie and say, okay, well, th this is a historical drama. There are truths that I will get out of this, even if it isn't the truth of actually having been there and having gone through that. I'll give you another example. Um, I, I really like uh, the books written by Eric Larson. He, he wrote Devil in the White City, mm -hmm. and I'm currently reading Dead Wake, which is about the, the last voyage of the Lusitania. Um, before she was torpedoed. And something that he does in his books, and I think is really great, he always says in the preface that anything that he has written that is in quotation marks is something that is historically recorded as having been said or written by the person in his book saying it. Hmm. Now, he's able to write a story and, and create the drama and sort of the flow of the narrative where, where it is a riveting narrative tale. Um, I, to, to use the, the phrase, it is, his books are page turners and it feels like, you know, the same sort of exhilaration you get from watching a movie. It's reading something really exciting, but you know that when he's got something in quotes, it is accurate. It is real. And he's not fudging the truth with that at all. So I'll kind of give them a little bit of a pass here and say that maybe if we have access to a complete set of information, we could actually trust the computer to an extent to create something that is pretty accurate. You still won't know. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't mean to be like difficult about this, but like, I, I go back to things like, I mean, we don't know what information is going to survive in 10 years, in mm -hmm. 50 years, in 100 years, right? Mm -hmm. We, we talked on here before about, um, what happened when they, um, when they were putting the Enola Gay on display at the Smithsonian. Mm. People, people complained because there were, uh, veterans groups. I understand why they would be touchy about it. I totally do. But yeah. the, the original uh, thing about the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki was, it was going to include a whole thing about whether or not we actually should have. Right. And and veterans groups came back and said, uh, no. And the Smithsonian relented. And so if you were to go by that record that was created by the Smithsonian for this whole thing, it was all fine. It's all good. We don't know what's going to have survived. I mean, so go into the Star Trek universe. We don't know what's going to have survived the Third World War and the faction wars and all that stuff. I mean, we don't know what we're going to know about Gertrude Stein and, and Sigmund Freud at that point. But we're going to say that going into this, you know, made up recreation of it uh, will actually tell you what that was. And that, I mean, look, I'm getting, I'm getting caught on like, on like a very small thing that, that Crusher said. Mm -hmm. Picard said, I wonder what they talked about. And Crusher says, go find out. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, Picard saying, oh, I wonder what they talked about. And, you know, even if she had just said something like it might be interesting to explore or something like that. But if we're, if we're accepting recreation as truth in the 24th century, uh, we're in trouble deep. 
I, I, I get it. I mean, I, I think, though, to, to the extent, you know, you can make the same argument and say, well, if you were to ask me, um, I, I, what did what, what was Sigmund Freud like? I mean, if I said, here, here's a here's a, a biography about Sigmund Freud. Well, you're only getting what that biography has. You, right. You're not getting the full picture. You're not you weren't there in a room with Sigmund Freud. So no matter what, with, with any separation of time, with any separate separation of uh, uh, of, a, of a mediator um, creating that information, there, there's going to be some loss of accuracy, I guess. <laughs> Even even the words you use, though, what was Sigmund Freud like? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's okay. So I can see a biography giving you an idea possibly of what Sigmund Freud was like. What mm-hmm. Picard wants to know is exactly what happened. And what Crusher says is, we'll go do this thing. You'll know exactly what happened. Yeah. I'm also reminded yeah. a tiny bit of something that Eddie Izzard joked about one time. He's like, I research things the way everyone researches things. I watch TV for 20 <laughs> minutes and I think I know something. <laughs> right. Like I, I'm flipping around right. and there's a documentary about sharks. Now I know about sharks. Right. <laughs> it's right. like, okay. Yeah. That struck me as that as that kind of thing. Hey, we've got so much more to talk about than that, though. We do. We do. Uh, but but truth be told, yes, I want a transcript of what Freud and Stein talked about. I think that would be awesome. Well, I, I've got a program that will actually tell you exactly what oh, that Oh, nice. Was. Nice. Yeah. yeah. It'll be like Eliza, my old uh, uh, Apple IIe. <laughs> How are you today? I'm fine. How are you? That'll be, that'll be the extent of it. Like, wow, that was a riveting conversation. <laughs> Pretty much. And yeah. Same yeah. again tomorrow night. Yeah. yeah right. Oh, right. Um, so, Ken, I, I feel like this is sort of a, a watershed moment. I mean, we, we've had all these... These things leading up to the end of season seven, the end of next gen on TV. And, and here we are with the ultimate episode to deal with a question that has burning in our heads ever since I'm going to see at least the practical Joker back in the animated series. Um, is the enterprise computer alive? Is it aware? At least does it think? And. Are we treating it like a slave? And if we are, are we okay with that? Well, I, I guess those are some of the questions that maybe could be thought about around this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think I have solid answers for them, but uh, they sure are making a case by saying that the Enterprise computer is at least doing the tasks of a thing that is alive, creating a thing that gives all indication that it is alive or, or as they call it an emergent intelligence. Right. Um, and then, uh, and then we just go back to normal. Yeah. then it's fine. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. Like, wow, that, that was cool. Thank goodness. We don't have to deal with that ever again. Ultimately the, uh, the, the, the purpose of the emergent enterprise uh, intelligence there. Mm-hmm. Is to is to make a baby. Mm-hmm. I was actually kind of annoyed when when Crusher said that whole thing. Like mm-hmm. you know, well, there are some, uh, and this is true. Uh, there are some you know life forms whose whose sole purpose is to reproduce, and then they die. Mm-hmm. And I'm just kind of annoyed that that's so. That's what the Enterprise did. That that was it. Like <laughs> it's going to be alive long enough to make it. Not even reproduce though. Just produce something. Yeah. And then, uh, and then, yeah, call it a day. I, I, what I actually did find interesting is there was a portion of the Enterprise that seemed to be showing loyalty to the crew. Mm, right. And it was the engineer uh, when right. he argues that they're only trying to help. And he warns Riker that they're all trying to hijack the train. 
so a portion of the enterprise felt loyalty what to the people who made it to the people who who ride around with it recognized you know what those crew members were i found that i found that part really fascinating yeah yeah no i i did too it, it was so the enterprise computer basically having these these well for lack of a better word these conflicting emotions mm -hmm. about the people on board well well they're good to me uh but they'll get in my way um, right. I want them to help, but I also want them to stay away so I can complete my task. I mean, it, yeah, it, it's it, it's a fascinating read on what the computer is thinking, again, mm -hmm. for lack of a better word, about the crew who, who occupy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just interesting to see the to see that particular bit of conflict, although very short and very short lived. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it comes out and says, oh, I don't feel good about this. And so then the rest of the Enterprise just kills that part of the Enterprise. Literally kills it. Doesn't right. even shut it up. Doesn't tie it up. Like, I don't know why the gunslinger was tied up yeah. during that card game, but doesn't yeah. tie it up, doesn't incapacitate it, kills the part of it that feels bad about that because now it has, dare we say, a prime directive of its own. Oh. And, and and we're not going to get in, we're not going to get in the way of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I, I brought up uh, – well, they, they have this interesting conversation um, in which uh, – I believe it's Data who said consciousness is an emergent property, mm -hmm. meaning that consciousness is more than the sum of its parts. Um, and I actually – well, I, I kind of vacillate – do I actually believe that or, or not? But I, but I, I guess you can – you can't describe consciousness by just describing the the arrangement of neurons in a brain. That that only tells you so much. That it's just like yeah, you have neurons here and they fire, and you know the chemical that crosses the synapse does this, and there you go. That's how the brain works. But that doesn't actually describe consciousness. You know, right. consciousness rather is the 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 function. It is the end result of what those firing neurons in your brain are doing. I, th I thought it was, it, well, kind of like all of this, it was the beginning of this really interesting conversation that seemed way beyond what a 48-minute TV show could do. Uh, not even a 48, 44 minutes, <laughs> way beyond what that could do. Almost almost like I want this to be a book uh, that that I will not read because we're not covering that on Mission Log, but but the idea is solid. Well, you see, the problem is I feel like we're almost jumping to the next part now if I say what I wish had happened instead. Well, hold on to that thought then because All right, uh, then. because I would love to come back to that. Um, I did make uh, another parallel, though, that I thought uh, I, something that jumped into my head is the emergent intelligence is uh, – it was said in the show, like an infant trying to figure itself out as it goes. And I thought, hey, not unlike a line from a certain Star Trek movie I really like, V'ger is a child. A child? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you're not, you're not, you're not wrong. Although yeah. I really think, honestly, it goes, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, I mean, the, the Enterprise computer is smarter than V'ger, right? The 1701D is smarter than V'ger. And, and that's because V'ger 
was working with very little. Beecher yeah. was working with 1970s technology, and it went out there and it collected a bunch of stuff, but it doesn't know how to put it all together. Yeah, Beecher is locked into one program. The, the Enterprise computer, uh, not unlike a really great rice maker, uses uh, fuzzy logic. Okay, I don't, I don't know what that means, but all right. Yeah, it just means that it, it, it can work in the gray areas. It's not just on or off. It, it can figure things out. Right. Well, I mean, the fact that, look at it, it's even tracking things that it's not built to track. Mm-hmm. Uh, the theta particles or whatever it was that nearly ex- nearly destroyed the ship. Yeah. It's able to see that. It's able to think sideways. It's able to, I mean, there's a, there's a certain amount of hubris, honestly, in, in Picard and Troy and anybody else saying, oh, it's learning from our holodeck, whatever. 98% of what happens in the holodeck is the computer. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> right? right. You just say, I want to do something fun. No, I want to be in a Dixon Hill novel. The computer's like, I can write a Dixon Hill novel? How long do I have? <laughs> what, immediately? <laughs> All right, fine. And so it does that, right? I mean, it's so much smarter than V'ger is. And and um, yeah, so I, I kind of get what they're saying, but uh, yeah, please say your last thing because I, I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to start doing the end segment. I know you're, you're ready and, to and wrap it up. I know. I'm re- I know. Well, I'm not, it's not that I'm ready to wrap it up. It's just, I mean, there's a, there's a, a tremendous amount of stuff here that would be worth talking about. Yeah. 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 And I kind of wish that we had, we've dealt with the computer enough that, that we should have been able to have a better conversation with it than we did mm-hmm. when part of the computer is trying to put a goblet through a piece of armor, right? Mm-hmm. And that computer can write you the whole medieval scene. And so it knows that that's never going to work. I kind of wish, yeah, but again, I'm going to the next part. <laughs> Sorry. I don't well, need- and this might kick off another I wish, but this is something that I, I thought they almost approached in the show, but but had this gone on maybe another... 10, 15 minutes or so, I was curious to see how far the Enterprise crew would go to protect this new life form. And I put new life form in quotes because it's part of the mission of the Enterprise to seek out and explore. And um, it, it, it seemed to me, you know, it, it took that point where they kept saying, we have to get control back of the ship, we have to get control back of the ship. But at what point do they put the the mission? Well, we're about to to see something remarkable here. This ship is creating a life form. This is what we're all about. At mm-hmm. what point does does that even overtake their um, their their sense of urgency to wrestle control back? Um, obviously, the captain's uh, uh, priority is the safety of his crew and the safety of his ship. But but I, I liked where we were headed at the end. Uh, in particular in that conversation between Picard and Data to say that, yeah, that this could have been and was potentially really dangerous. We have no idea we've unleashed. But the, this is part of the mission. They they just accomplished something that is in their mission, and it was there right under their noses the whole time. See, what I'm curious about is when you say it would be interesting to see how far the Enterprise crew would go to protect this new life form. Mm-hmm. Were you talking about the thing the Enterprise was creating or were you talking about the Enterprise? Oh, because ooh, it's a new yeah. life form as well at it this is. point. Although not, it is. not necessarily a new life form because we've had exocomps in the past. We've had and we've decided that they're alive. We have data walking around inside the Enterprise and we've decided that he's alive. Yeah. 
And so then when they decide, oh, the enterprise is coming alive, we we have to stop it. Uh, but we also have to protect it. <laughs> yeah. We, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know what we do now. It seemed like everybody was saying, although yeah. they all seem to know. Uh, it's yeah. Which So I'm curious, which life form are you talking about? Are you talking about the one that it created and sent off, or are you talking about the ship itself? My original note was thinking about the one it created, but yeah, but we're back at this place now where the Enterprise, we we have to accept, is its own life form at this point. There, there's no other way to look at it other than that. And I would hope, I would think that everybody walking around that ship from now on after this point is just, just a little more creeped out than they were <laughs> See, before. I would hope that they're not more creeped out. I would hope they're just like petting the walls every now and then like, oh, thank yeah, you. Right. Thank you. Hey, I'm a big fan of how you're not crushing me right now. Way to go. With the most important character on the next generation, back in her subservient circuitry, it is time to see what we can take from Emergence. Like a butterfly turning into a caterpillar, John. Mm. We've witnessed something amazing in this episode of Emergence. <laughs> really? You're not going to do it? I thought you were going to do the sleeper thing. No. I thought you would do the sleeper no. thing. No? No. no. Uh, you're just going to leave me out there. Pretty much. Pretty uh, much. That's fine. That's a joke though. from a movie, everybody. Yeah. It's a joke from a movie. <laughs> I know that it goes the other way. Uh-huh. Emergence is the episode that we uh, watched this week of, of Star Trek The Next Generation. And now is the time where we ask ourselves a few questions about the particular episode, about the messages, the morals, the meanings, and whether the episode holds up. And that's where we begin. Does this episode hold up as far as you're concerned, John? Um, you know, it's weird. For some reason, uh, I kept thinking that this episode occurred way earlier than it does. And maybe it was just because um, of the the CG design of the, uh, the, the new life form that I just thought it looked kind of dated in the 80s. I, it maybe, yeah. maybe that was why. Um, or because it was a holodeck episode and I thought we'd gotten all the holodeck episodes out of our system. But I feel like this is exactly the kind of episode that should come toward the end of the run. You're sort of wrapping everything up. You have plenty of Star Trek, at least next-gen tropes. You have the overuse of the holodeck. Everyone gets a moment. You know, mm-hmm. everyone has their time here. It's not just the captain's story or Data's story, as we've had a lot of those in the past, in the recent past on those. Um, it's a mystery, sciencey thing for everyone to solve. Um, and it's, it feels kind of comforting to return to that kind of Star Trek. Now, it has horrifying implications, but whatever. Whatever about that. We just created a new thing. We unleashed it into the universe. Um, we're, we're walking around the halls of uh, of a, a ship that could now be considered a being, but we're fine. We're fine with that. Um, it was some good, heady, idea-driven Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I've said on our show, and to you off the air, uh, I'm fine with Star Trek dipping into that soap opera territory from time to time. I, I, I like seeing some stuff emerge to coin a phrase about our characters. But this was cool. This was cool to see something that, that is just an idea episode. Um, so to me, it does hold up. 
but I have a lot more questions coming out of it than I did going in. Uh, how mm. about you? I feel like I've got the same questions uh, coming out of it as I did going in. I mm. mean, you referenced earlier uh, the Practical Joker from the animated series. Mm. Um, we've never really had an answer, and this computer is just better than the one that was on the 1701, certainly. Mm. It's more intelligent, it's smarter, and yet we had the computer on the 1701 in the animated series it sort of unleashed and granted it, it was more, you know, Loki than Odin. Mm. But, I mean, it was a practical joker, wasn't it? But yeah. then it, it sort of seemed to feel a certain amount of horror when its ability to joke was going to be taken away. When its free will was going to be taken away. As far as this episode in particular, there are shades of phantasms uh, mm -hmm. in this episode, including the reference to Freud at the beginning. But then also just sort of like the unthinking parts of the ship. I mean, and I don't want to. I don't want to make it sound like I don't like it. I, there are problems that I had with the episode, um, starting with we're maybe going to kill it, right? Yeah, we we might be able to use the holodeck circuitry to disable the nodes permanently. So we learn nothing from exocoms, right? <laughs> and also, data has to figure uh, that this these things are alive because this is like totally da data's bag. I mean, it should have been Jordy saying, "I think we can actually disable them permanently." And data going, hang on a second, yeah, because right. <laughs> it's alive, and you're talking about killing it. And I know you're saying disable, but you know, uh, killing it, and then data as well. It may disengage the nodes without destroying them. It may disengage the nodes without destroying them. So we think new life is emerging, um, but we can stop it from interfering with us, maybe without killing it. Mm -hmm. Which is a surprising thing to hear from him. Mm -hmm. Now, there are things that I do like about it. I like the idea of the characters on the train representing thought. But I do find it impossible to believe that the Enterprise computer would think as slowly as it's thinking in this episode. Hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of um, of when Barclay, you know, inter uh, interfaced with the Enterprise uh, through the holodeck. Sure. The, the Enterprise computer should be thinking at least that fast, especially if it's got four holodecks going all the time with people doing ingenious things in those holodecks and the computer itself interacting with those people, making those ingenious things possible. Right. Yeah. I'm actually bothered by how linear the ship's thinking is. It tried to run data over with a cab data, stopped the cab and the ship can't think of another way to kill data. <laughs> right. Cause, cause like right. he's got one hand in the manhole. He's got the other hand holding a cab Right. Mm -hmm. At this point, I'm seeing like real Toontown stuff, like drop a piano on him. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh, that would be awesome. Love or send in a wrecking ball or something like that. That'd yeah. be kind of neat, too. Uh, there are a couple of other problems that I have. Um, I have a problem with Data having a problem with what Picard did. This would have been a great conversation for Riker and Picard to have or for Worf mm. and Picard to have. Jordy and Data should be all about this. Mm. Right. They should mm. be a hundred percent okay with this. Um, cause you know, Jordy's best friends are always computers and data. I mean, this goes back to lol. This goes back to the exocomps. This goes back to, you know, data having to defend his own right to be called alive. So yeah. it struck me as odd that he was the one in the end who was like, eh, so what's up with that? I wanted Picard to be like, what's up with you wondering what's up with that? Um, and then, of course, the very last thing is the Enterprise is just dumb again at the end. 
Crusher's whole thing about suggesting that its purpose was just to reproduce and then die. Really? That's what that's what the Enterprise is going to do. That's that's our swan song moment. Now, what I really wish had happened, I would love to have seen Moriarty again. Oh, I would love yes. to have seen. Yes. And how is he there? And have him actually wondering how he's there and how he's here. I mean, go ahead and have the computer own what the computer is yeah, and have the yeah. computer own what it's doing. But instead of us spending all of this time trying to figure out what the computer is doing, have the computer try to figure out what the computer is doing and yeah. have – I'd be fine with the talkiest talk conversation episode ever. I kind of, I kind of wanted like the architect from uh, the second Matrix movie, which everyone knows was <laughs> Matrix Reloaded. I think I wanted the computer to sit there and talk with us about this because it's had seven years with these people now, right? Yeah, it's had plenty of time to honestly sort of consider. And would it not have been freaky for the computer to say, "Yeah, kind of since season four. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. I mean, because because you're right. At the very end of the whole thing, and I know you joked about it in the last thing, but like, should should Picard call the entire fleet and say, you know, run a hard restart? Yeah, on everything. I mean, this certainly could happen again. This could still be happening. Actually, it's very hard to believe that the mm -hmm. captain of the flagship is going to be like. So the computer kind of took over everything for a while, but. It's not doing it now, so we're good. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, and, and for all those reasons, that, uh, that's why I felt like, yeah, that this would make a great book. It, it would mm -hmm. make it, it might be the talkiest of talky episodes, but but you could really explore this in a book quite a bit more. All the the kind of ethical implications of what's going on here. It reminded me. It made me. Um, and I'm not just saying this because we know him. But um, I, I highly recommend Robert J. Sawyer's uh, trilogy, uh, the WWW trilogy. Um, mm -hmm. And I can't remember what they are. It's so watch, wonder, and I can't remember what they are. But basically, it's about an emergent intelligence. It's about, it's about AI sort of waking up and the different steps that it goes through in becoming what it's going to be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's no guarantee that it's going to be a good thing. I would have liked some of those kinds of conversations. Also, would have liked that kind of speed from this computer because it was a little too, well, like I say, it was like the characters in Phantasms. And, mm -hmm. and, and yet it sounds like I don't like the episode. I do like the episode a lot. It gives us a lot to think about. I just feel like, I feel like we're at like exocomp level thought here. The exocomps were actually a little bit further along, I believe, than the Enterprise was in this episode. Sure. And so, I mean, having done this a couple of times, I would really like to have had. I would like to have had a bigger conversation. What about uh, what about messages, sir? What kinds of uh, what kind of messages did you pick up? Uh, well, I mean, I, I think the interesting thing is that, it, like I said, we're we're left with questions here at the end. You know, what, mm -hmm. what was the right thing to do? Where where are we now with this? intelligence that surrounds the crew on a day-to-day -day basis with the crew uh, asking it to perform tasks for them. Um, but it, it is a good conversation that they have at the end. Uh, Data saying to Picard, you took a substantial risk. And Picard, the, the last bit of that saying, if our experiences with the Enterprise have been honorable, can't we trust that the sum of those experiences will be the same? Um, <laughs> well, yeah, look, and, and here's the thing. I, I, I know that 
yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, it is questionable what happens in the holodeck. Of course, Picard yeah. is talking beyond the holodeck as well. Just everything that the Enterprise computer has seen and witnessed over the entirety of their seven year journey and the, the breadth of human knowledge that has been fed into that computer. But it is sort of a, I, I see that last line as kind of a, a challenge. You know, it, 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 it speaks back to this aspirational nature of Star Trek to mm-hmm. say, well, well, you get back what you put out there. So if if you're entering into whatever your quote-unquote mission is with honorable intention, then you will get that back. Um, that, that, that is what you will sow. Uh, but if you don't, well, it will come right back around to bite you in the behind. So <laughs> I, I, think, I think it's fair. I think it's fair what he's saying. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Are you actually saying one of the messages is as you believe, so should you do? So should you do, Ken. So should you do. Interesting. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You know Roddenberry's into a ton of stuff. Uh, they got the products they sell. They got the movies. They got the foundation trying to save the planet. Uh, and then, of course, they also have some podcasts that they do. You can check out this show. You can check out Mission Log Live when Mission Log Live happens. Women at Warp and Priority One. And who knows what else is coming down the pike? Find out at podcast.roddenberry.com. If you'd like to help support this show, gosh, that'd be swell. Patreon.com slash Mission Log is the place to do that. For even more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That is Trek.FM. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. Next week, preemptive strike. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. And from the album Messages by Key Theory. Free to download at kitheory.com. Tiffany. That's him. That's him. I love that. Her name is Tiffany. (laughs) Nice. And transmission. 